That was Jazz Master and National Medal of Arts recipient Hank Jones playing Bluzette, which was written by Norman Gimbel and Jean-Baptiste Toots Thielmans. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. As you heard, Hank Jones is an elegant and lyrical jazz pianist. Born in 1918, he embodies jazz history. He's made thousands of recordings, both as a soloist and as an accompanist, playing with many of the greats, including Ella Fitzgerald and Charlie Parker. Hank Jones is still at the keyboard, both recording and touring internationally, hitting four continents in 2010 alone. When he was awarded the National Medal of Arts in 2008, he stopped by the studio to reflect upon his career. Here's our conversation. Okay, Hank Jones, I'm going to start with a very easy question. It won't have to be easy because I, I don't know the hard <laughs> What makes jazz, jazz? You started out with a hard question, right? Well, I think the fact that there is a lot of improvisational activity, you have to see, when you play jazz, you first you have to know the melody, of course, of whatever you're playing. Then you improvise on the melody, which means you play variations of the melody. And it's a sort of freestyle. Uh, it's a loose style. It's relaxed. I think that's the probably the short answer. I don't know the long answer. I know, as you say, one needs to be very relaxed, but it always seems like a, an incredibly brave thing to do. Well, <laughs> in the sense that you're always exploring new territory. You're always doing something else. What you try to do is you try to uh, vary your playing so that you're always playing something different. You don't want to keep playing the same thing. You don't want to get into a musical cliche. So I think that's that's one of the problems you have to watch. Now, you come from a very musical family. Well, I was lucky enough to be in a family that included Dad, my brother, and Elvin, and also had two sisters. I had a younger sister. She also played piano. And then my, my youngest sister, Edith, who didn't play, but she sang. And, of course, Thad and Elvin. And my father played guitar, and my mother played piano. Now, there was a lot of church music in your home. Yes, there was. Early on, I heard a lot of gospel music, hymns, spirituals, and I was particularly fond of spirituals, and I still am to this day. Can you talk about the crossover from moving from a house with a lot of church music to then exploring jazz and how you ended up being a jazz pianist? Well, it's not that well defined because um, the crossover was gradual. Mm -hmm. I started playing church music. Gradually, I took lessons, and my teacher taught the use of scales and exercises and also uh, short pieces that were not jazz-related. They were short, uh, semi-classical pieces, and later more classical pieces. But then it, when I started hearing all the jazz being played by the player pianos and also by recording, see, my mother and my father had a tremendous collection of records, uh, records of all types, blues, jazz records, so I heard a lot of music. And I, I think in hearing this music, there was a gradual transition, let's say, to something in my mind said, well, maybe if these people can play this way, why can't I do this? You know. So I started to experiment. And that's how you start. And experiments resulted in disaster, as you can see. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> now, you mentioned Fats Waller. He was an early influence. Yes, he was, certainly. Fats Waller, I think, influenced my playing a lot early on. And then there was Teddy Wilson, and of course later on the great Art Tatum. 
Tell me uh, the first time you heard Art Tatum. The first time I heard Art Tatum, I, I couldn't believe it. I said to myself, this is a trick. No one person can play like this. There has to be at least two or three people. That, that was my impression of Tatum. It lasted a long, long time. Finally, when I first saw him in person, I realized that it was just one person. I was still amazed. And when you watch him play, as I got a chance to do it later, you could not believe the things he was playing because there was very little arm motion, body motion. He did it all with his fingers, everything he did. And it was quite amazing, and still is to this day. Your brother, Thad, was a horn player. A great horn player. Played trumpet and cornet also. And, and Elvin, a drummer. Yes, Elvin was a fantastic drummer who never studied drumming officially taught by a teacher. He learned, he was in the Air Force and was in one of the Air Force bands. And that's how he learned to play. Also, he was a great fan of uh, Buddy Rich. He loved Buddy Rich. I used to be with JTP, and whenever we'd play Cleveland, Elvin was stationed at an Air Force base near there. Elvin would be at the concert listening to Buddy Rich. Did you get a chance to play with your brothers often? Not as often as I would like to have, you know, because I preceded them by a few years, you know. They were quite a bit younger than I. Elvin and Thad played a lot together, more than the three of us ever played together. See, in Detroit, where Elvin sort of got had most of his activity, he played in a band, like a house band at a, at a club there in Detroit, where a lot of players came through, play players like J.J. Johnson, uh, some of the horn players, Dizzy, uh, Miles Davis, uh, people like that. They came through, and Elvin was playing in the house band at this club in Detroit, so he got to play with a lot of people, and he absorbed a lot, I think, in, during that period. You moved to New York in 1944? Yes, late 1944. Can you talk about the difference in the music that was being produced in Detroit at that time and the music that was happening in New York? Well, in Detroit, of course, you know, we had people like uh, Barry Harris, you know, Tommy Flagg, who played there. But uh, the music that I heard uh, was sort of jazz. It wasn't the kind of jazz that, that I heard later on. It wasn't called bebop at that time, you know, because Dizzy Gillespie hadn't made his appearance by then. <laughs> but uh, it was it was two-handed jazz, you know. This is Teddy Wilson's style, the, the Fats Waller style. That was the style then at that particular time. When I got to New York, I started to be influenced by uh, Bud Powell, uh, people like that, Monk, Theolonius Monk, players of that type, you know. And then what I wanted to do was to, to retain some of the style that I had previously, but also to absorb some of the of the different style that I heard, which was called, erroneously, I might add, bebop. You know, you don't like the term no, I, bebop. No. Tell us why. Because I really don't think it adequately describes the type of music that is being played. I think a better term would be, I don't know, you could even you'd use the term experimental music, although that has certain connotations that I don't want to get into, yeah. and not the extreme. But I think it was different, yes. It was a little more complicated. You had to have say, a deep understanding of harmony, and you had to also have a certain flexibility in playing, whatever instrument you played, piano or trumpet or saxophone, whatever. You had to be very, very fluent. The style was very complicated. So when they call it bebop, it doesn't describe what they're really doing. What the, what they're doing is, I'd say, playing an advanced form of jazz at that time. I think, was it Dizzy Gillespie who said bebop was playing the notes between the notes? I don't know whether I agree with that or not, because there is no space between the notes that you can, that you can play. <laughs> but, 
But when you listen to Charlie Parker, it kind of makes sense. Well, Charlie Parker, yes, of course. Uh, Charlie played a nice moving star. Don't forget, Charlie's roots were from Kansas City. So you could say uh, his playing had it was a very, very strong blues uh, influence because there was a lot of blues played in Kansas City. So everything that he played came out of that. Mm-hmm. You know. And you played with him? I played with him on certain recordings, but never in a nightclub. And what was it like recording with him? Fantastic. Exciting and stimulating. Uh, you had to think in order to play with him because he, he played such a variety of uh, things, changes we call them, chord innovations, substitutions, so forth. And you had to be really on your toes to play with him. I enjoyed it, but it was a, it was a mental exercise for me. <laughs> <laughs> and you also played with Ella Fitzgerald for five years. Four, it was actually about four and a half, you know. It was a great experience for me because it was a different uh, mode of playing. You had to learn how to accompany. See, accompanying uh, is quite different from playing solo. Mm-hmm. When you're accompanying a soloist, be it a vocalist or an instrumentalist, you have to play in a manner that is complementary to the soloist, but you never interfere with the soloist. You provide support, but you never overshadow. You, you play in the background. You, play, you provide a platform for them to play harmonically, and melodically and whatever it takes. So it means that you have to listen very carefully to the solos. You complement the solos, but you never interfere. You play in the open spots, perhaps. Sometimes you lead a little bit, but never to the point where you interfere with the train of thought of the solos. That's the difference between being a soloist and and playing for someone or with someone. What about the difference between playing for someone like Ella Fitzgerald and playing with Charlie Parker, for example, the difference between playing with a singer? Accompanying uh, Ella Fitzgerald, you see, you had to think in two modes. You see, Ella was a very fine ballad singer. She was one of the greatest. Also, she could scat sing with the best of them. So when she played scat, you had to alter your style just a little bit, you know. My style, basically, in accompanying was the uh, the chord style. You know, that is, I didn't use the single finger fills that a lot of pianists use. I think when you use single finger fills, this is not a criticism, but I think you tend to interfere with the train of thought of the of the, uh, of the singer. You don't want to do that. So I played sort of block chord fills. I did that quite a bit also with uh, playing behind Charlie Parker and solos of that type, because you had to provide that harmonic background exactly. So there had to be sort of a floor for them. It's hard, it's hard to describe, but it, it means that you had to lay down, as I, if I may say that, uh, a pattern of chords that was complementary to what they were doing. Can we play something yes. of yours? I'd actually like to play Bluzette, written by Toots <laughs> Tielmans.
playing, Jones? Uh, well, I, I don't know. Who was that playing? <laughs> Who was that playing, first of all? I've listened to that, and I think who's ever playing this is bringing so much joy to it. Mm. Well, you know, I when I'm playing something, I think of something pleasant. I think it requires thinking in a certain mode. It might be better to say thinking in a neutral mode because you don't want to be influenced by anything that you've ever heard before. So I think you, you're starting from zero, and you progress from that to wherever you're going, wherever it ends up, you know. What strikes me is... Hopefully it won't remain at the zero level. (laughs) (laughs) But it seems to me with jazz, it's always a collaboration, no, between the composer and the musician. It is, because what you're doing is you're playing on a format that was created by the composer. And that's one thing I always try to do. I try to establish uh, the melody that the composer had in mind, because if you don't, then you're really playing in a vacuum. So you try to be true to what the composer had in mind, even with your improvisations, is you always have to keep that melody in mind and also the harmonic progressions as well. Well, that's what improvisation is. I mean, you have to create a different line, a variation of the original melody, so to speak. How often do you practice? When I'm at home, I try to practice about three hours. When you're on the road, it's hard to do unless you have a, a portable keyboard uh, that you can take it with you. But when I'm at home, I practice three hours, three and a half, four or something. Try to keep in shape. If if you can't play what you think of, then something's missing. It all happens very quickly. You, you don't have time to uh, to think, so to speak, when you're playing. Because you, you will have established all of that prior to that. And your your technique then follows. Your technique is is first, because if you don't have that, you can't play anything. That's the thing that always impresses me, because not only is it being improvised, but it happens so quickly. Yes, it happens. It happens instantaneously. You think of it as you play it. And so you're always thinking ahead, really. I think that may be the key. For instance, if you're, if you're side reading, I think one of the keys is that you have to think maybe two or three measures ahead. You have to look ahead to see what's there. Well, improvisation is almost like that because you're thinking of the chord progressions two or three bars ahead. So when you get there, you know, you know you're know you prepared for it. You spent, what did we say, almost 20 years working at CBS? 17 to be exact. 17 to be exact. Why did you choose to work at CBS? Well, it happened sort of by accident, you might say. I had first done some recordings with Andy Williams, the singer. Mm-hmm. And after the recordings Andy did, I moved to CBS. And he asked for me to play on that show. So... I was fortunate because Andy Williams brought me along. He recommended me, and I, I you know, I got the job at CBS. And then subsequently, I, I was put on the Gary Moore Show, and I did that for about oh, 17 years. So I was pretty busy, you know. And then you left CBS and you went back to playing clubs. That's right, and uh, we call it freelancing. I used to freelance. Uh, you get calls from a contractor. They say, um, um, "Are you free?" Uh, next Thursday at, at uh, 2 o'clock, I say, well, I'm not free, but I'm reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No. <laughs> but um, I did a lot of freelancing, uh, recordings and so forth. Uh, I did some work with um, bands like uh, Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, and uh, Coleman Hawkins, small groups. 
And of course, there, were, there was a bit of recording connected with any, each of those. So uh, I got a lot of experience in various formats. Is there any format you like best? Well, I have to say that I like solo playing best, although a close second would be duo with bass, uh, the close third would be playing with a trio of bass and uh, drums. But I think I believe I like the solo format best because I think it gives you more freedom. You can explore things uh, that you wouldn't dare to do if you were playing with somebody else because they couldn't possibly follow what you're doing unless they knew in advance what, they, what you were doing. So I like I like the solo format best. And tell me, how did you hook up with Joe Lovano again? I had I'd heard of Joe, strangely enough, when I was doing some things out in Idaho. They're doing the Lionel Hampton Jazz Festival out there a few years ago. Joe was on one of the uh, one of the programs there. I didn't get to play with him at that time, but I knew about him. So consequently, when uh, he came to uh, New York to do a series of engagements, he called me. Uh, he was doing going me to do a duel. And there, there's the duel format again, which I enjoyed doing. So I played with Joe during which time. I also had a chance to play solo because when Joe wasn't playing, mm-hmm. it was solo. So I was able to do both things. I had the best of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> and you also made a great CD of spirituals called Steal Away. Mm. That was with Charlie Hayden, the bass player. And that well, seemed like an unlikely duo as well. I mean, Charlie Hayden doing this, but yet it's it's absolutely gorgeous. Well, thank you. I I enjoyed doing it because, as, as you know, I, I think I may have mentioned the spirituals. I, I grew up listening to spirituals. You know, the strange thing is, Charlie and I actually played a concert in Montreal together, during which we played half the program, spirituals, the other half, jazz. It was a sort of a combination of two things. When, so when we went into the recording studio, the A&R man said, well, why don't you record the things that you did in Montreal? So that's what we did. That's how that came about. And it was a great experience. I loved doing it. And I, I liked playing with Charlie. So it was, it was great. I loved playing the spirituals. I love spirituals. In yes. 1974, you went to the White House. Tell us about that. Yes. They were doing at that time a celebration of Duke Ellington's 75th birthday, I believe it was. Uh, so he was invited to the White House, and I played with an orchestra there. And that was a great evening at the White House. Duke Ellington. I worship at the altar of Duke Ellington. <laughs> <laughs> As we all do. <laughs> yes. You know. By the way, Duke Ellington uh, was one of uh, was Thad's inspiration for writing. Although he did not write like Ellington, Ellington inspired him. And Thad was a really great arranger and composer. And you've often felt that he has not gotten his due. I believe that. I think he should have uh, been more appreciated. The band, the band should have had gotten more recognition. Uh, musicians, people that that know about music, appreciated that, but not the general public. I think, uh, and it's, it's too bad because he was a great composer and arranger, and player. A lot of people don't know, it, but Thad was one of the greatest trumpet players that ever played. You see, when he had the big band. He had uh, three or four trumpet players in the band. He allowed them to do most of the solo work because he was conducting. But uh, the Cognoscenti recognized his ability and his talents. Your brother aside, if you had to name any two or three composers you just love to play, who would they be? J.J. Johnson, Charlie Parker, of course, Tad Dameron, perhaps, yes, because they were the foremost composers of that of that kind of music at the time. 
their music still exists. People are still playing it. Sometimes they don't even realize that they're playing it, but they are. And is there anyone that you particularly loved playing with? Well, of course, you know, I loved playing, accompanying Ella Fitzgerald. I loved playing with the Benny Goodman trio when I was working with Benny and the Sextet Quartet. And, of course, I enjoyed working with Joe Lovano, who I think is one of the greatest tennis saxophone players around at any time. Oh, Charlie Parker, of course. But, see, my, my work with Charlie Parker was very limited because I only did recordings for him. See, he did the tours, a couple of tours, I guess, with, with JTP at the time. When you did a tour of the Norman Grants and the Jets at the Philharmonic, during the off time, you did the recordings. Can you talk a little bit about Norman Grants? He's had such an impact on jazz. Well, I have to give Norman Grants credit for bringing jazz, let's say, to a lot of people that might never have heard it before. He brought jazz to the concert halls. He brought jazz to a lot of communities that probably had never heard jazz with players like Charlie Parker, Bill Harris, uh, Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young, Buddy Rich, people like that, in person. So Norman Grants was responsible for that. Also, uh, he broke the uh, color line, I believe, in uh, some places in the South. The color line was a very real thing. He insisted on mixed audiences. Previously, that had not occurred, you know. So he deserves a lot of credit for what he did. And the body of recordings that he left behind is... it's. It's monumental. Yes, and I guess there were a series of, what, eight or seven or eight, I'm not sure, recordings of JTP. Volume, I think, volume goes to volume eight, I believe. I should know. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, did, uh, I did a lot of them. It was all a great, it was a great experience because, you know, you got to play with people. When I first came to New York, you see, I had heard about people like, like Coleman Hawkins and Lester Young by reputation. I had never seen them before. And... When on JTP, I got not only to see them, but to work with them. So it really was a great experience for me, mm. a great learning experience, as everything else is. Everything that I do is a learning experience. I'm still reaching for that goal. You made your first album 61 years ago. Did you have to bring that up? I'm sorry. And you're still working. Yes, I am, as a matter of fact. I you- continue to do so for the next, let's say, give or take, uh, 50 years, about 250 years. <laughs> and we look forward to hearing it for many years. Hank Jones, thank, thank you, you so much. It was really, really a privilege thank to you. talk to My you. Privilege. Thank you. Jazz master and National Medal of Arts recipient, Hank Jones. Hank is gearing up for his 92nd birthday this summer at New York City's celebrated Birdland. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. The music is Bluesette, written by Norman Gimbel and jazz master Jean-Baptiste Toots Thielmans and played by Hank Jones. It's from Live at Maybeck Recital Hall, Volume 16. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. Next week, David Stull, Dean of the Oberlin Conservatory of Music. To find out how art works in communities across America, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow the NEA on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.